All right. Thank you, Morgan and Emily and Natalia. Turn in your Bibles with me, if you would now, please, to John chapter 15. We continue on, even as I alluded to during communion, we've been for quite a while in that this section where Jesus is with his disciples uh, just hours from the time in which he will be arrested, uh, taken off to his trials, and then eventually the next day uh, crucified. laying down his life for our sins. And he wants to prepare these now 11 men. Judas has already left the room where they've held the Passover together and shared together in what Jesus inaugurated as the Lord's table. And he wants to prepare these 11 men for what's about to happen. But then also what the things that he shares with them here are things that will will equip them, and they'll be able to use for many, many years ahead, and of course, then pass down, even to us. And John, in his gospel, written fairly late in his life, um, obviously he shared uh, these things with people as he taught, but then it was written down so it could be preserved, so that even, that we could hear the words that Jesus shared with his disciples, and have those for our relationship with Jesus and for sharing him and and explaining him to others. If you remember at the end of chapter 14, Jesus wraps up one section of what he's teaching here and talked about what what it means to be united with him in the spirit and with the father. And then he says, and let us go from here. And so apparently... It's really hard to tell for sure, but he taught this maybe as they were going, or maybe stopped along the way as they were going. Uh, maybe they saw a vineyard, and the teaching from, from John chapter 15 was conducted there as, as they had right in front of them a visual of what the relationship with Jesus was like. Others think possibly they, they came past uh, the temple gate, And during this time, there was a golden grapevine on the temple gate that symbolized Israel as God's vine. Uh, We don't know for sure. Um, But but Jesus wants them to to know what, in a a visual form, what their relationship with him is like, and be able to then pass on down through uh, those that they will give the truth to, and then as they share that gospel with others and with others and with others, all the way down to us, so we can say, oh, that's what it's like to have believed in Jesus. So follow along with me now, if you would, as I read verses 1 through 11 of John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him. 
he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And uh, even just as I read through that, there's so many things I'm not going to talk about this morning that are in that passage or things that I have learned over the years. One of, the, one of my favorite passages, really, because it, it is so striking in how it shows us what it means to believe in Jesus and therefore know Him. But we're going to start at the end of that section rather than the beginning because Jesus gives us there a purpose. Why did He say this to the disciples? Well, verse 11 spells it out. He tells us, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus wants us to be joyful with his perfect joy. And not just a little bit, but filled to overflowing. So he says, so I give you this picture. I give you this way of visualizing what it means to know me, to believe in me. Because he wants them and then, of course, us understand better and therefore benefit to the greatest degree the joy that this relationship is designed to bring. Because working with the design, right? The way that the person who made it does it, and Morgan even mentioned that. You work with the design, it works better, right? He says, so think about how I designed you to work with me. It will deepen your joy. It will fill up your joy. Because he's already told them before, that's his goal. Uh, if you might remember back in, he talked about being the good shepherd in John 10.10, 10, where he said, I came that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. So his desire for us is to, to fully participate in the good life that he's designed for us. And if we listen... If we grab hold of this and say, yes, Lord, I'm with you. Lead me in this. What he's saying is your joy is going to fill up and overflow. So now let's go to the picture itself. He starts off with a very bold statement. Another one of his I am, the last of his I am statements in the Gospel of John, which declares that he is, in fact, Yahweh, the God who created everything, the God of Israel. And he says, I am the true vine. And the vine, as I already mentioned, was an Old Testament picture. Uh, one of many previews that God gave them, pictures and, and visuals, like he's the good shepherd, right? And now Jesus, you know, Psalm 23, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. Now Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. That picture in the Old Testament now fulfilled to its Completion in Jesus. He said he was 
like a husband to Israel. And now Jesus is going to be the one who makes the church his bride, right? God said, Israel is my son. Now Jesus is that that perfect son. He he fills up those word pictures. Now he's going to take this picture where God has said, Israel is like a vine. And he's going to fill it up and say, that was a shadow. That was kind of a glimpse of my relationship with you. But now Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of that. I am the, the true vine. Let's turn first, though, to Isaiah chapter 5. It's one of those passages in the Old Testament where this this word picture is used with Israel. It's used as a rebuke to them. Uh, They have been uh, persistently sinful over the course of a long, long time, and God is about to bring judgment on them through the nation of Babylon, who's going to come in, is going to defeat them, is going to destroy Jerusalem and and tear and, and haul off many, many of the people of Judah to Babylon into captivity. And this is how God, through Isaiah, pictures that. He says, let me now, let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile, fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine." He built a tower in the middle of it. He also hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled down. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I also will charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So Israel was set up as a nation, as the means of God to bring his blessings and goodness to the world. And he wanted them to actively participate in that with him. He wanted them to to rejoice in giving God glory and showing the world what an amazing God our Creator is. But they had rebelled against Him. They'd gone their own way. They had worshipped idols. They'd, They'd loved their riches and their things more than they had loved Him. He'd given them every opportunity and advantage to be able to succeed and produce what is truly good. And when He looked for fruit on His vine, He didn't find what He was looking for. Remember there at the end, Isaiah spells it out for it. I looked for justice. I looked for righteousness. I didn't find it. Every opportunity was given. But Israel, who was God's vine in the Old Testament, couldn't produce it. Didn't produce it. 
But Jesus now says to his disciples, Israel, yes, is God's vine, but I am the true vine. So Israel was a type or a foreshadowing of what Jesus would would be in the fullness in his coming. But now rising up out of Israel that had failed miserably to produce the good fruit that God wanted was Jesus. And rising up out of Israel, Jesus said, I am the true vine. He'd come to be the authentic or the real vine of God. He would be the person who could come and fill up God's purposes in the world of sinners and rebels and and transform them into those who are what he intended from the beginning. And it's interesting that Jesus here says, I am the true vine, means the authentic one, the real one, the, the one that is not a picture anymore, but the actual reality. I read in the, in the online this week that Merriam-Webster chose a word of the year. You know what it is? Authentic. That's what this word true means, authentic. And we're, we're in our world looking for what's authentic, aren't we? Are you real or are you just putting on a show? Are you the actual thing or are you just a, a shadow? Jesus says Israel was given the opportunity to be be God's light in the world. And they failed miserably. Jesus says, I'm here, and I've come to be the vine, the source of life, and the source of, of producing of what God is looking for, and I am the true thing. Get ready. Let me explain what that means. But before he talks about what it means for him to be the vine... He says, if there's a vine, there needs to be a vine dresser, right? He says, my father is the vine dresser, the one who cares for the vineyard. He will continue to provide for this vine like he did for Israel. Remember back in Isaiah 5, he did everything that that vine needed, right? And so everything necessary for uh, Jesus to produce good fruit, the father will be doing, working in conjunction with Jesus. And since he starts with the best possible vine, The success is certain because his skills and his wisdom in caring for the vine are perfect. He accurately assesses the kinds of activity going on in his vine and takes appropriate measures to make sure that that vine produces the best fruit. It fits the disciples' current situation because they're uncertain. They've heard Jesus say he's going away and they're troubled. Judas has left the room after Jesus has said, someone's going to be betraying me. They didn't suspect him yet, but pretty soon it's going to be very, very obvious who it is. And here's one who's lived with them, uh, done everything with them, been taught with them, served with them, and it turns out he really didn't even believe and was willing to be a traitor to the, the Lord they loved. Jesus wants them to have this picture to understand that the Father is working that all out and taking care of it all. And so now he talks about then the work of the vine dresser. And there's two different groups. There are the branches that that are not bearing fruit in Christ. And this can be a little bit confusing, uh, depending on how how you take it out of 
out of the Greek into the English. It can almost sound like, oh, here's a branch, it's in Christ, it's not bearing fruit, so he's going to take it out of himself. Probably a much better way of putting it would be, the branches that do not bear fruit in me, with the, the, the phrase there, in me, modifying where the fruit is, is born or produced. There, there are other places where this exact same structure is used, and it's, and, then, and it's always about the verb. Where is the action carried out? Okay, And so they're not bearing fruit in him. And I think that's where the emphasis needs to be, is where the source of the branch is. Is it in the vine or just close by and looking like a branch of the vine? And there, there are things that are going to grow up, right, out of the ground, and they're going to weave themselves in with the rest of the real branches. And you have to have an eye and say, oh, that's not a grape branch there. It needs to be pulled off. It needs to be taken down and out of the way because otherwise its roots are down in the soil, eating up the nutrients that the vine needs, right? It's not going to produce grapes, which is the goal of having a vine in the first place. And so one of the first things Jesus says is there are those who are going to be Take it away, because they're not actually even attached to the vine. They're just in the vicinity. They're not producing fruit. And if you jump down, and we're not going to do this exactly all in, in the order in which it's written, if you jump down to verse 6, it makes sense there as well, because it says, if anyone does not abide in me. In other words, they're going to be branches, aren't part of the vine. He is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them, and they cast them into the fire, and they are burned. That, of course, that's what you would do in a vineyard. You've got weeds growing up or, or wild grapes growing up alongside the cultivated grapes. You're going to get rid of those. They're not going to produce what you want. You cut them off. You throw them into the middle between the, the rows between the vines. And then you gather them all up. And what do you, well, you get rid of them. You burn them. And he says that's the case of what our Father is doing. Is he's making sure that the vineyard, the vine, is healthy. And Judas is really a great example who had been close by. He'd been right there with them. And now he's gone out and he'll never come back and be a part of the group of disciples again. In fact, within a very short amount of time, he will take his own life, proving that he actually never was in the vine, that he never was feeding off of Jesus, but it was just came along with his own agenda doing the things that, for, for what he wanted. On the other hand, Jesus has a lot to say then about what about those who do bear fruit in Christ, as he goes on in, 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 in verse 2. <clears throat> it says, but, and every, the second half of the verse, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. It says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. By the way, that ties us back into Judas as well, doesn't it? If you remember in the last chapter, when he talked to, when he earlier when he washed their feet, and he says, "You don't need. I don't need to wash your whole body. You're already believing in me. Therefore, you are clean." But not all of you. And 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 John tells us he was talking about Judas. So that ties in here as well to that idea that you know that the the husbandman or the vine dresser is the one who takes care of even the false. Branches that work their way up around the, around the vine. But here, those that aren't 
could take it out. But then there are those who do produce from the vine. They are in Him. What does He do? Well, the Father prunes those so that they can bear more. It's done by the one who knows the whole vine and what makes the branches the healthiest and most productive. The Father knows just what it takes to bring about the best fruit. And it's kind of interesting if you get a chance to go online, go on YouTube and and watch a few videos about how to to prune grapevines. There's a whole process and and a recognition of what what helps produce fruit and what, what causes fruit to not grow well and how you end up with just little tiny grapes and how you, you end up with big, full uh, bunches of grapes. But that's the job of the, of the vine keeper. He's in there chopping, clipping, pushing, moving, making them go a certain direction. But one of the things you need to know about pruning, though, is it's painful. So for the branches, he says, there's going to be some pain caused. Father's going to do some things in your life in order to help you to bear fruit that is really good fruit. I mean, with a, with a, a, a grapevine, it's cutting off parts of the branch. It's not something that would happen if the branch was just left to itself. It would just grow all it wanted, whichever direction it wanted. But the vine dresser imposes his will on the growth and life of the vine and the growth and the life of each individual branch so that it can be the best branch for the purpose in which it's grown. And that means clipping some things off. He guides the direction of that particular branch. They're lifted up on a wire or a string, so they're up off of the ground so that they can better produce grapes. And he wants the the branch positioned in such a way so that it gets the right amount of sunshine, so that the clusters as they grow, they aren't crowded together. But he has the sovereign right to arrange that branch in a way that best produces good fruit. And so he cuts off bad parts as well. If there are diseased or inferior parts, they're snipped off. Choices are made for the future of the branch for its health and fruit production. It doesn't get to keep everything that grows. It doesn't get to keep every part of it. Just because there's growth, there's growth doesn't mean that what's grown is what's best. Notice he's got in in mind not just good, but best. And so the the vine dresser actually limits growth in parts of the branch. If there's too much energy being directed to the growth of leaves, a large part of the branch actually may be cut off. Whole bunches of grapes are often cut because they're growing too close to another bunch of grapes. And so if you leave both of them, you'll get two inferior bunches of grapes. You'll have more grapes, but they really won't won't be worth having. And so he he judges between those, steps off whole bunches of grapes that have started to grow so that the ones that are left behind will be good, quality, and abundant. In fact, sometimes, and actually every year during the wintertime, they go back and they cut off almost all of what has grown the previous year. And all that's left are a couple of buds to grow for the next year. But it's the, the wisdom of the vine dresser 
what's going to be left behind and how it's going to be done. And that really speaks, I think, if you start, stop and think about your life. And if God, if the Father is the vine dresser, he's going to come in and strategically remove things from your life, cut things back from your life, say, yeah, this is growing like crazy this way, but you know what? It's only going to be detrimental to producing what is really truly good in your life. Are you, are you growing a lot of things with your time and your energy that are going to be no, no use in the long run? Remember, a vine is grown for grapes, right? Leaves are nice, but it's the grapes you want. But then you want really good grapes. So are there areas of your life maybe God says, I'm going to take this away? Not that it's necessarily bad, but I want something better for you. Oh, but that hurts, Lord. Yes, but it's for good in the long run. You have to trust the one who's wielding those, those clippers, don't you? That he would, he would do what is right and what would help. And so that's a big part of it. But then Jesus goes on to talk about abiding in him in the following verses. And just obviously we're going to just get a little bit in each one of these areas. But notice in verses 4 and 5, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So that idea of abiding, you might have noticed, it's repeated again and again and again in this section, isn't it? It's the verb form of the word back at the beginning of 14. Remember where he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places or mansions, abiding places. He says, but right now, abide, live your life in me. And he commands it. It's not a suggestion there. But isn't abiding in Christ just the natural state of everyone who believes in Jesus? How... How is it he can command us to do what's just naturally going to happen? I mean, and Jesus also said that, that uh, those who, who love him, he and the Father will come and make their abode with him. So, of course, I'm going to abide in Christ. I mean, all those things that he talked about in the last chapter, about how we're united with him, isn't that just going to happen just because I believed? You might say that abiding is something like being married. Think of it this way. I might say to someone, be married. And if they're not married at the time, what would they do? Well, they would have a person of the opposite sex. They would go and they would go through a ceremony and they would become married to that person, right? And you could say, oh, they are now married. That's their state. That's, that's who they are in a sense. They're united together as one. Now they are married. Have they done what I said? Sure. But I could go up to them and say, now that you are married, be married. What I mean is, go and live together. Be intimate with one another. Live life together in the same home and build that life. They, they could go do that and, and have done what I said to go do. And even then, I still might say, be married, meaning Act as though you are married in every context of your life. We've all known people who are married, and yet when they were off with other people, you wouldn't know it, would you? 
They aren't acting like they're married. They're not being faithful to their spouse. Their spouse isn't on their mind to build up and to encourage and to, to do what is good for them. There's a sense in which they need to keep in mind their identity in their marriage in the way that they live and the things that they do. It should impact every area of their life. And I think that's where Jesus is getting at right now when he says, abide in me. He says, remember who I am in your life. In fact, I am necessary for you, according to verses 4 and 5, right? He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do, oh, a little bit. Apart from me, you can do, oh, things that are not that important. Apart from me, you can get by. No, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, no fruit bearing that matters for why you were created. A branch is unproductive, unproductive without the, and, and without the ability to produce fruit or do anything without being attached to the vine. It's true of a physical branch, right? You cut it off so it's not connected to the vine anymore. Or even if it happens, it looks like it's connected, but somehow it's being, being squeezed off. Is it going to grow grapes? No. Eventually it won't even grow leaves, right? It's got to be taking its, its very nutrients and life and water and all that it needs have to come from that central vine. In the same way, there's nothing of value that we can do unless we're saying, Jesus, I have to have the ability to do this from you. I am so weak, I can't accomplish it. It seems like not much, but I need you to do it in me and through me. Provide me the strength and the power to do it. Because remember, the branches without any connection to the vine are only worth being burned up. But if you're in the vine, there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, you have to remember where your life comes from. Now, obviously, a physical branch doesn't do that. It just you know, takes it. So there's a sense in which it's, it's natural. But on the other hand, it should speak to all believers about our absolute need for practical dependence on Jesus for every little thing. It's not just, you know, my ticket, got my salvation, tuck it in my pocket and go. It's not, Jesus, to get up this morning, I need you. And for some of you, that's more obvious, right? Because it's not so easy just to get up out of bed. And he makes it obvious for us sometimes. For without you, Jesus, I can't talk to that person I know I need to talk to. For some of you, you don't have a problem talking to people. It just flows. So it becomes more obvious, but it doesn't matter if it's easy or not. We need him to do every little thing in life. And that doesn't mean we get bound up in, oh, let's see, i got to have a, a you know, five-minute prayer every time I do any little... No, he wants us to be in constant communion with him, just like a branch is constantly connected to the vine and that, that those things are flowing out of the vine into the branch. But it does mean that we can be constantly talking to Jesus about whatever it is in our life, big or small, he cares about it and empowers our ability to do it. Every little thing. In fact, listen to him describe what it means to bear fruit. He talks about it being a progression. You'll notice in verse 2, he says, every branch that bears fruit. But by the time he gets down then into verses 5 and verses 8, what's he talking about? He, he 
prunes. Why? So that it will bear much fruit. And in verse 8, then he says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. So his goal is not just for you to have a little bit of fruit. So he calls on you to actively work along with him. So that that fruit increases and increases in your life which tells me, oh, I can't be content with just letting it go like it has been. Got, got this locked down, Lord. Let's just coast to eternity. No, he says he wants much fruit. Okay, And so he wants us to be tied into to him and what it is he is doing. You ask, well, what is fruit? Well, what did God look for in Israel as a vine? Well, he looked for righteousness. He looked for justice. He looked looked for characteristics that were like him, weren't they? Things that glorify God when they're in abundance. Did did you catch that in verse 8? By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so show, demonstrate to be my disciples. So what is fruit? Well, it's what glorifies God in the broadest sense. And so the things in your life that don't bring glory to him aren't good fruit. Everything that glorifies him shows him to be great. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for fruit. It's the things that come from the indwelling spirit. And you're probably all familiar with Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the spirit. What the the spirit produces in you is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those characters of life that look like Jesus. That flow from the power of the spirit within you because without him you can do what? Nothing. Right. He nurtures what is best for each one to produce. And then he says also to be asking. We've seen this already in the, in the previous chapter, where he says in verses 7 and 8, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He keeps bringing that up, doesn't he? We looked at 1 John 5, 14 and 15 and, and said, well, it's kind of like, what he said in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, I will do. Uh, in, in 1 John, when he writes about it, he says, ask according to my will. Now he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you can ask what you will and it will be done. He just keeps help us to understand what it's all about. If you are living in me, dwell, actually drawing your life moment to moment from me, and my words are at home in you, if they live in there, and that's what guides your thought processes and why it is you do what you do and how you, how you think things through, how you interact with your family, with your neighbors, then his words are, are living in you. As that happens, you know what he's up to. You know what he wants in your life. And he says, yeah, ask. Keep on asking all the time for me to do things because that means you're in sync with the vine. You're in sync with my plan and how much fruit will be produced. And so he emphasizes here one more time, asking again. Ask him, what are you doing in the vine with me and with others who are also in the vine, Lord? How does this all fit together? It's an intimate, ongoing, moment-by-moment life of awareness of him. And it's all done according to verse 9 in the context of love. Just as the Father has loved me, 
I have also loved you. Abide in my love. How do you trust for such an intimate, such a, uh, an invasive thing to happen? Well, you have to know that the person who does it is loving you, right? With a love that goes beyond the kind of love we see in this world where I love you as long as you give me what I want. So this is like the Father. The Father's love is in Jesus. The Father loves Him. I have loved you. So now live, dwell, make your place where you are all the time in my love. That's the context in which you'll be able to live this way, knowing that I want what is ultimately best for you. I don't just want you for what you give me. Yes, I want you to produce great fruit. But it's really about what is ultimately best all the way around. It's in that context, and that context produces obedience. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. As as we experience the love of Christ, suddenly there's an eagerness to do what Jesus tells us to do because we know He knows what's best. And even when we've been pruned back, we said, oh, I didn't like that, but look at what it produced. Look what it did in my heart, how it changed me. And that was really hard, but I know it. he did it because he loved me. And now I want to do the next thing he asks me to do. Because I'm convinced that not only does he empower me in that, but he loves me. And he's growing my love for him. And that's the great thing about love and obedience, is they feed each other. Because out of our love for Christ flows, I want to do what he says. But sometimes do you not feel like doing what he says? I sometimes do, maybe more often than I even realize. But when I act out of obedience, even when I don't feel like it, then my love starts to, to grow again and flourish again. And the two build and feed off the other. So as we obey and love, love produces more obedience, which produces more love, and you know how that goes from there. Jesus gives himself here as well as an example as he lives in his Father's love and obeys him. Remember, they're walking on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, I am abiding in my Father's love, and I am obeying him right into Gethsemane, where I will wrestle with all of this and say, not my will, but yours be done, and go to the cross where the greatest kind of love was demonstrated. And he tells them, watch, I'm about to do what I say. I'm not just giving you ideas that might work for you. I'm going to walk ahead of you and show you in the greatest way possible what this looks like. Finally, remember why. Why did he say all this? For the joy, right? For the joy. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's where, if you you want joy in your life, he says this is where it comes from. Now, if a person hasn't experienced abiding in Jesus, it might seem like a hard and difficult life. Ah, man, it's just always obeying. But deep down, however, there is a rejoicing 
when you work according to the way God has designed things like this, there's rejoicing that no circumstance can ever fully destroy. When we're fitting into God's design, His way for us, the joy is a deep abiding certainty that it's related to the peace that in the last chapter Jesus said, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. And the command to abide here is for us when we have a hard time feeling the joy. You're not feeling that joy in Christ? Okay, well, remember, he commanded you, abide in me. Jesus, for the joy set before him, according to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? Well, for the joy set before him. It wasn't feeling the joy, but it was there, plowing through the cross, right? But he knew on the other side. And so our certain future with him is the joy that we need to keep looking toward, because Hebrews also tells us, setting your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him. Oh, when I can't feel the joy, look at Jesus and follow him to the joy set before us together with him. Hard times aren't the only way it is either. Oftentimes the joy overflows with grateful hearts and rejoicing that can't be contained that overflows. Jesus wants that joy for you. It's found here in abiding in the vine. Let's pray. Father, uh, Jesus said so much, and I've been able to explain so little of it. Uh, his words were concise, and maybe mine aren't as like they ought to be. But help us to start learning more and more fully and experientially and, and, and pulling each other along together into what it means to abide in Jesus and to have him abide in us and we abide in you to, to continue to know more, more experientially and fully what that means. Thank you. Thank you for the joy that you desire us to have. In Jesus' name we pray.